This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for May 27th, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, and 16, verses 4 through 15. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Anybody know what today is? Pentecost. What do you know about Pentecost? We're red. When the Spirit descended on the disciples. Anything else? Anybody teach you it was the birthday of the church? I always heard that one. You have to wonder, though, if you think about, so why did God send the Holy Spirit upon the disciples on Pentecost? I mean, what was it about that particular date that was significant? Um, You know, what was it that happened 50 days later? And if you remember, he had been ascended. Reed knows. Very good. Give that man a cigar. Bubblegum. He looked it up. Oh. Somebody turn off the Wi-Fi. <laughs> it was actually a Jewish feast already. It was called Shavuot, and, uh, and still is a Jewish feast where they celebrate the giving of the law um, by Moses to uh, Israel. And that was 50 days after Passover. You all realize that? So on this day, when the people gathered to celebrate the giving of the law, um, then that was when Jesus chose to send the Holy Spirit upon them. Now, we've even had a whole movement called the Pentecostal movement that's come out of this date, this, this saying, um, which I always thought was somewhat interesting because one of the major features of, of Pentecostalism is speaking in tongues, which I guess is why they talk about it in terms of Pentecost, but that's actually not what happened on Pentecost. Um, there is speaking in tongues, but that's not actually a Pentecost event. What happened on Pentecost, though, was that the disciples were gathered in the upper room, as usual, locked away, hiding from everybody, um, because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Yeah, I mean, they were stamping out the movement, weren't they? I mean, you'd be afraid, too, probably. If they were doing, and, yet, and so here they are, and they're thinking, it wasn't too bad when Jesus would appear to them and teach them and do things. I mean, there was stuff going on, but... but for the last 10 days, nothing. Every time it's like that in your life or there's nothing. Like, where's God in the midst of all this? And on that Sunday morning, suddenly, it says, the Spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire. Now, that doesn't mean there was literally um, tongues of fire descending upon them any more than, than it meant that the, you know, the Holy Spirit descended um, like a dove flapping all the way down or anything. It, it's a description of what happened. And, and, and Luke is trying to explain to us what has happened here. Why would he choose the illustration tongues of fire? And that, that's just what's fascinating about it. Have you ever seen tongues of fire? What does it look like? What causes it? There's four of them right now, yeah. But they're not falling. Yeah, they're going up. Fire can fall, by the way, as things, if oil drips, for instance. If, if there's oil and it's dripping off of something and it's on fire, it will fall. What happens to what it touches? 
catches fire. What happens if it's a is it, if it's a metal that's become liquidized and it's burning? What does it do? It can penetrate it, can't it, and go right in. And that's part of what Luke is trying to illustrate here is that it's not that the Holy Spirit at once came and, and became, you know, sort of like the dove descended upon Jesus as one, but, but rather it's like everybody in that room had the Spirit implanted in them. The Spirit came and, and penetrated into them. Now, what else would fire do? If you had a t- fire drip on you, what would you do? Scream. Stop, drop, and roll. You wouldn't just stand there and ignore it, though, would you? Uh, and, and that's the other part of this, is that it's, it, it is compelling. It, it creates action on the part of the recipient. You can't just stand still in the midst of it. And that's exactly what happened with the disciples. You know, when, when the Spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire, they were compelled, urged, you know, exhorted, felt like they had to go out and to proclaim the good news. And imagine this. They all, here these guys have been hiding because they're afraid. And now all of a sudden, they're going outside in the streets and they're, you know, shouting to everybody, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. Now, why were they hiding again? Because of why? Because they killed the Jesus that they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, so that doesn't look good, does it? And, and But here they are. Not only are they telling it, they're boldly proclaiming it. And, and it's an amazing thing. It says that day 5,000 people believed in Christ. Now, do you think that's because they went out and said, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead? If it works that easily, we could all just go down to the mall, couldn't we? And I mean, we'll just stand, get people at different ends in the middle. You know, everybody will just, you know, we'll synchronize our watches. And at a certain time, we'll all shout out, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. And the whole mall suddenly will become Christians. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Christian flash mall. What do you think the chances of this are? There's obviously something else going on here. Something more that happened. It says, though, that they spoke, proclaiming this, and that what the people heard was in their own language. Now, at first, the response was, they're drunk. Not only are they drunk, they're drunk on new wine. Now, why is new wine used here? Do you know anything about new wine? It's not good. Yeah, that's true. Basically... In modern terms, they've been drinking Mad Dog 2020 all night. (laughs) That's kind of the gist of it. And Peter, who's just brilliant, I love Peter. He says the dumbest thing. He says, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What makes you think we're drunk? Obviously, Peter was a fisherman. He didn't go to college. And so he never saw any of that. Being 9 o'clock in the morning doesn't have anything to do with being drunk, does it? Somehow or other, Peter thought it did, but why would you think we're drunk? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Why would they think they were drunk? Because they're weird. 
I mean, why are you, what are you out here shouting about? I mean, what's that all? You know, something wrong with you? And it is a festival, so people did drink at festivals, but, but obviously these people are nuts, which is another reason you're afraid. Because being crazy isn't really a very good thing, is it? You know, what do you think would happen if you all went out and started shouting at the mall? They'd think you were crazy and they'd come and take you away. You're that or malicious. Those are the two options the disciples had at the same time. Was, you know, and they weren't good. But then something different happened. Suddenly somebody said, What's really amazing, you got these Jews and they're all, all speaking in Parthian. The guy from Pamphylia says, they're not speaking in Parthian, they're speaking in Pamphylian. The guy from Cyrene says, no, they're, they're speaking our language. The guy from Crete says, no, they're speaking ours. And they said, no, they're not, they're speaking you know, all over. You know, People are saying they're speaking in our language. Now, why is that significant? It's different than the, the gift of spiritual tongues, which is an ecstatic utterance. This is, they're speaking, but everybody understands it in their native language. Something is different. And to really understand what is different, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? What happened before they built the Tower of Babel? Hmm? Yeah, they all understood one another, right? And they were going to make themselves like they were going to climb to heaven by building this tower. So God said, hmm, see how that works. I'll just make a whole bunch of different languages and nations. And so he divided all of these things into different languages so that, you know, the guy would go up and say, I want you to build this, you know, like this and this and this. And the other guy would say, what are you talking about? You're speaking gobbledygook. And all of a sudden they didn't understand each other anymore. And misunderstanding came into the world. Now, what's fascinating about the Tower of Babel is this, is do you know where the Tower of Babel was? Iraq. Except Iraq wasn't there. But <laughs> huh? Persia? But Persia wasn't there yet either. That Somebody said Babylon, but that wasn't there yet either, actually. It goes way back. But it was in the, the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And a lot of scholars believe that the Tower of, of Babel is a, was a ziggurat, which is what they were building in those days, the Sumerians were, in a particular town. And that's the one that they're talking about. The town is one that's name is kind of odd. It's Ur. And you remember who came from Ur? Abraham. What we see here is if you go back to the garden in the fall of Adam and Eve, and then, you know, you've got Cain and Abel and, you know, the Noah and the flood and Tower of Babel, all of these stories that are coming down is this descent of, of human beings from being made in the image of God to walk with God and talk with Him all the way down to this, human, this animalistic kind of nature, this sort of falling away from God completely in which the Tower of Babel becomes sort of the culminating point in which they don't even understand each other anymore much less do they understand God. And then God puts into effect the plan of salvation. And he starts with Abraham. And he sends him forth. And from that time on, although it's sort of you know, two steps forward and one step back a lot, from that point on, God is moving the world back to his kingdom. 
back to his sovereign rule, back to where he is the one who is in charge of everything. And all of that then culminates in Pentecost. Because you see, on Pentecost, that barrier that had been set up at the Tower of Babel was broken down. And now they can all understand one another, no matter what language you're speaking. It's like the universal translator on Star Trek. You ever notice how all the aliens speak English for some reason? But they're not really speaking English, by the way. We just hear it in English. You know, and, and that's what the Spirit does. It reconnects all of these people as, as he lives in them so that they can begin to understand again. And that's why 5,000 people were converted. Suddenly, they got it. They understood that God's kingdom, God's sovereign rule over the universe was being imposed in that very moment because there would be no way that all these people who speak in different languages could hear it in their native language and understand it. And yet here they were doing it. So that's one thing that happens is it's the reversal of the downfall of all human beings in the Tower of Babel. But that still leaves the question of, so what is it about the law, doing it on the day that, we, that the Hebrews were selling, you know, celebrating the giving of the law? Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because if you go back to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, no longer will you teach your children thus and thus and so and so. No longer will you memorize the law and write it on your foreheads. You ever seen phylacteries? You know what phylacteries are, those square boxes? Sometimes you see Orthodox Jews have, that's what those are, by the way. The little piece of paper with the commandments on them that they attach to their forehead because they pray with that. But he says, no longer will you do that because I will write your law, my law upon their hearts. No longer will you need to teach these things. Now, what's the difference between having a written codified law that you have to teach and a law that's written on your heart? Becomes part of you, and what it's something you want. You know, when God writes His law on our hearts, we do what He wants us to do because we want to do that, not because we have to, not because those are the rules, but because we want to follow Him and obey Him, and because now, once again, we can hear Him and understand Him, and so the law has been transformed not into a written codified law, but a law that's more immediate than that. One in which you can follow the spirit of the law even if you've never learned the letter of the law. Because what you're doing is you're listening to God through the spirit and doing those things that he gives you to do and saying those things that he gives you to say. The kingdom of God is broken in to the world. It's a, a visible sign. The fact that we can understand like that is a visible sign to the world that God is sovereign over all. So we come to today and, and look at what that means in our day. You know, if, if you basically look at the world, it doesn't really look like God's sovereign over all very much, does it? I mean, you see... You know, the, the people, you know, kids shooting kids, parents killing their own kids, kids killing their own parents, wars, um, people stealing money, 
you know, the injustices that are rampant, not to mention just plain downright people not being very nice to each other. Uh, and you have to say, boy, it doesn't really look like God is very sovereign. So what's happening? Was all that just sort of a flash in the pan? It was nice for them back then, but now we've got to get back to business as usual? Well, no. <laughs> That's why we're here, is to tell people, no, God is sovereign overall. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whether you want it to or not. And furthermore, it's not going to be done on your time frame because he's God and you're not which is rather annoying to most of us, but but God is in charge. And because the law has been planted in our heart, we now have the opportunity to truly live into the image of God that we were made to be in. We truly have the chance to be the children of God that he wants us to be because now we can hear him again because of the spirit that lives in us. That's why the only thing that you can have ever done that would be unforgivable is the blasphemy against the Spirit, the rejection of this gift, the rejection of God's um, writing His law in your heart will lead you to death, eternal death. It never, ever ends. But the embracing of it will lead to life that is more abundant and joyful and amazing than you could have ever asked for or imagined. So where are we in all that? You know, we're, we're Christian. I assume most of you all aren't blaspheming today. Otherwise, you'd probably be in bed, not here, or, or doing something else. I don't know why you'd go to church if you wanted to blaspheme. But, so, but are we embracing this gift? And I think part of the problem with the church today is that all too often we say, okay, yeah, we got the gift. We're just going to sit here. You know, we're sitting on the fence. You know, and, and because it would be uncomfortable, wouldn't it, to get off the fence? What happens if I make the wrong decision? What happens if I do the wrong thing? What happens if what I think God's saying to me isn't really God? What happens if I'm wrong? What happens if it makes people mad? What happens if I lose my